0: Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff.
2: This is a CBC Podcast.
3: Hello, I'm Neil Kirksal.
4: And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight.
3: They've withheld, but she won't withdraw. Prison officials in Iran will not get her the medical care she needs. So Nobel Peace Prize laureate Nargis Mohammadi is now on a hunger strike.
4: End of the road. Music producer Noah Forty-Shabib tells us about growing up as the son of filmmaker Donald Shabib, and about the staying power of his late father's most famous feature, going down the road.
3: Out of office, we work files for bankruptcy, surprising everyone who assumed it had already done that. But a business reporter who watched its fall says it just may rise again.
4: Now hear this, (laughs) then hear that. A linguist discovers what all languages have in common, and it turns out it's a little of this and that.
3: Pros and consultations, the good news is the government is reducing its dependence on consultants. The bad news is one department had to hire consultants to do that.
4: And two birds with one phone. Comedian John Oliver has launched a global campaign to ensure the Puteke Teke wins New Zealand's Bird of the Century contest. But our guest thinks you should be rooting for a superior bird that's waiting in and with the wings. As it happens, the Tuesday edition, radio that accepts a little featherly advice, For more than a week now, Iranian activist Nargis Mohammadi has been denied urgent access to a hospital, according to her family. They say her condition is serious, but authorities at Evin Prison in Tehran have refused to grant her permission to get the medical attention she needs. So early yesterday, the Nobel Peace Prize laureate took a bold step. She began a hunger strike inside the prison, where she's currently serving a sentence of more than 10 years. Rayhana Taravati is a photographer and a friend of Ms. Mohammadi and her family. We
3: reached her in Paris. Rehane, what do you know about how Nargis Mohammadi is doing today?
5: Well, you know, she's, uh, she's been on a hunger strike since yesterday morning, the time of Iran. So it's been about 48 hours that uh, she's been on a hunger strike. Uh, I know that uh, from family that she's been feeling dizzy and uh, low uh, low end sh- blood sugar and um you know every hour it's getting more difficult and more difficult um because of her situation her the problems she has with her heart, the surgery she had before, so it's uh you know the family are really worried yeah. and her children
3: how are you getting word of her condition? who is bringing that communication out?
5: Uh, Well, uh, her friends are, uh, because they are all very much worried about her, so they call uh, outside of prison and trying to, you know, uh, give information about her. And uh, all of her friends are very much supportive. There is this, uh, actually there is this letter that just came to the family a few minutes ago. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen it or not. Seven of her uh, cellmates has started hunger strike Mm -hmm. to support her. And I think it's really touching and it's really beautiful. It shows that, uh, you know, everybody loves her so much.
3: Last month, almost exactly one month ago, actually, we spoke, um, you know, when the Nobel Prize was announced, we we spoke with another young woman, Anna Diamond, who had been in Evan as well. And she talked about how Nargis, you know, was um, a confidant, kind of a mother figure to her, cooked for her and talked about the kind of support she gave people.
5: She's like that. I think everybody talks about her like that. She's so supportive. She's such a wonderful person that everybody goes to her when they have a problem. She's like a mom to everyone. She's so kind. And, uh, you know, when people who are new to prison come to prison, she just tries to, you know, teach them and uh, be, be with them, support them. She's such a wonderful person. She has a huge heart. How have you come to know the family? Well, you know, I was so lucky to, you know, um, I was able to took some pictures, mm-hmm. uh, I from now I guess a year ago uh, when she was out for her heart surgery. We had she had like I think a few weeks and in that few weeks it was no ruse. and um, we did a photo shoot at her house and I spent one day with her trying to capture her, you know, normal life.
3: Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah, and uh, she was really lovely.
3: Did she say anything to you in that time that stays with you now?
5: Uh, yes, yeah, she told me about her heart surgery back mm-hmm. then and she said, with this condition, going back to prison, it's it's really hard for me. But, you know, I do it. I don't like prison. You know, she's such a alive person. She loves uh, living. Uh, she sings, she dances. She's such a happy person. She's full of life. And to see uh, a person with that personality inside prison all the time, you know, spending all her life in prison. It's uh, it's so sad.
3: Um, Why did she decide to uh, go on this hunger strike two days ago?
5: Well, uh, they've been uh, refusing to take her to hospital. It's been a week that the doctors, the doctors that... Uh, the prison has sent to the women ward, has said that uh, it's urgent that you take her to hospital for a checkup and for, uh, you know, because she's had a surgery before. She has two stents in her heart. So the doctor said it's urgent that she goes now. And they refuse to take her because, you know, Naga said that is not going to wear hijab for her transfer to hospital. And they've been refusing to take her. And, you know, her situation is not good. So she's protesting um, the situation they have put her in.
3: You mentioned her family. Her husband and two children are also in Paris, where you are. Mm -hmm. You're speaking for the family, you know, because because this interview is in English. What are they telling you about how, how they're feeling now? I mean, they're already worried. They're already separated. And now this.
5: Yeah, you know, the the pressure on the family is a lot and the stress because they have seen people dying from hunger strike before. They have witnessed these things happening in, uh, you know, in prisons in Iran. And the children also, you know, the twins are very young. They're 17 and they've Mm -hmm. been through uh, a lot of trauma in their lives.
3: What have they told you that you can share?
5: Oh, well, they are very much worried about their mother, and uh, but also they're at the same point, they're proud. They're very much proud. Yeah, and they hope this can end soon and she would be able to, you know, receive the medical care she needs.
3: The seven yeah. others who've now joined this hunger strike, do you know who, who they are?
5: No, uh, mm-hmm. it's not possible to mention their names mm-hmm. because of, you know, the they're going to start a new case for them in prison. But we know that there are seven people Mm -hmm. and they're friends of Nargis, close friends of her, and they're going to support her as much as they can.
3: Do you think that support, the international attention, the conversation like the one we're having, the Nobel Peace Prize, do you think any of this will help her and change her situation?
5: i hope so i think it, it should uh, i i'm very hopeful that um you know it uh, puts pressure so they would give her the medical aid she needs i'm very hopeful i think we should do uh, as much as we can uh, outside of you know prison to be the echo of her voice because what she's doing is really strong she's using every chance she gets to be the voice of iranian women and you know, stand in a solidarity with other women who are ref- refusing to wear forced hijab. I think it's very strong. It's such a strong message, and uh, the world should notice this. Uh, this is the least we could do for her and for the women of Iran and for women like freedom. You know.
3: Rehaneh, thank you for your time.
5: Of course, of course, it was my, my pleasure.
4: Rehana Taravati is a photographer and a friend of Nargis Mohammadi. We reached her in Paris. Once it was valued at over $47 billion with hundreds of locations around the world, but yesterday, just four years after that peak, the company known as WeWork filed for bankruptcy. Its business model was simple, rent out office buildings in city centers and sublease them desk by desk to gig economy workers. It's flashy CEO, Adam Newman pitched the venture as not just a way of renting out short-term office space, but as a way of life. He was ousted in 2019 when it was revealed that that way of life was funding his mind-bogglingly lavish way of life. Elliot Brown has been covering WeWork for the Wall Street Journal for a long time. He's also the author of a book about the company, The Cult of We. We reached him in London, England.
3: Elliot, this bankruptcy filing, what is it going to mean for all the landlords out there who've been leasing space to WeWork?
0: This could be pretty rough for for landlords in in the US and Canada. Uh, Basically, bankruptcy court gives... A uh, huge deference to to uh, you know someone who's filed for bankruptcy to cancel leases. Uh, normally, if you lease a building for 10 years, you're you're really on the hook. Uh, but but when you go bankrupt, th- this kind of releases them to do that. And so WeWork has said they're planning to cancel dozens of leases. Um, and and you have this this market right now where landlords cannot fill their buildings and they're desperately hunting for tenants. So to learn that they're suddenly going to lose another tenant is is going to be pretty rough.
3: What do you think was the final straw that led to this bankruptcy filing? And let me just say, as we talked about, we work as we've been talking about, we work over the last couple of weeks. A lot of people were surprised the company was was still actually around and still standing.
0: Yeah, this is a bit of deja vu, given that you know four years ago I, th- I thought we kind of wrote the the obituaries mm-hmm. of, of WeWork at the time. So it's it's been this two act play where from 2010 to 2019, they were just the poster child of, of startup excess and too much money in venture capital sloshing around. And so they spent on things like Wave Pool Company. Uh, they, they started a, a holistic preschool. They, they, they bought a $63 million jet. And then the CEO, Adam Newman was ousted. So ever since 2019, they've basically been trying to be a kind of boring real estate company, but one that can actually make money. And the problem is, uh, the office market has just gone off a cliff. So they have been ever since 2020, you know, trying to keep their head above water as Mm -hmm. as the office market gets worse. Um, And every time they think they can sort of see a place where they can break even, um, the the market gets that much worse. And so, yeah, occupancy has been going down the Mm -hmm. past two quarters. The revenue has been falling. It's a pretty... Bad situation for them.
3: You mentioned Adam Newman. If we go back in time to the peak where there was certainly a frenzy and buzz, what exactly was he pitching that so many investors bought into and bought in big?
0: He's just a world-class salesman. So so when I say it, it's not going to sound that enticing, but but <laughs> he was basically Calling WeWork a tech company, a disruptive tech company, and and it would shift a little depending what was hot. When when Apple was big with the iPhone, he said that Apple was about I, and and WeWork was about we, and then 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 they were going to be the physical social network uh, when Facebook was big, and and then they were going to be the part of the sharing economy when, when Uber was big. So um, he he managed to hit the right notes, and also. The, the investors at the time, these people who were really trying to plunge money into tech, they, they were just kind of thirsting for someone like him to come along, to get them excited about an idea, to make them think that it was tech. You know, they didn't. When there's a frenzy, you don't think too hard. You just want to sort of see something that can be right. You don't ask as many critical questions.
3: There's been some comparisons out there, you know, people saying WeWork is not unlike FTX or Theranos, you know, tech startups with with these big and and some would say eccentric leaders who convinced a lot of people into backing something that they ultimately couldn't deliver on uh, and using in some cases, altruistic terms, to do it. What do you make of those comparisons? Would you put them all in the same box?
0: It depends how you look at it. I I, I mean, the, the very big asterisk to that is that WeWork didn't commit fraud, or, or certainly they haven't been credibly accused of it. So I, the way I describe it is is someone like Elizabeth Holmes, you know, she basically said, I have a box and inside the box is this beautiful white dove. And, and that was just lying. Adam, Newman, what he was able to do was he'd have an ugly pigeon and then he'd tell <laughs> investors, hey, that, that's a beautiful white dove. And then they believed him. <laughs> they, they managed to see, he, he let them see what wasn't there. And then they gave him money to do that.
3: Do you think investors have learned anything from all of these stories, though?
0: <laughs> never, never.
3: They they just don't um, want to be the one who misses out on the next, you know, Google or Facebook they, or whatever.
0: Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, there's just this, this power of, of fear of missing out. Exactly. That's that, <laughs> that pretty I expensive think. FOMO. Yeah, it's insane. I mean, we. so <laughs> when we so we, we finished writing this book, um, our, our book, uh, The Cult of We in early 2021. At the time, people were asking the question of, has the world learned lessons from WeWork? And we thought, maybe. But then as 2021 went on, it turned into this completely pitched frenzy again. And you started seeing far crazier things like crypto, like FTX. So, yeah, th- that's my way of saying, if it lasts, it doesn't last long. Uh, there will always be another frenzy. I-, I can't predict when. But but tech is particularly prone to it
3: as mm. well. And Newman, we know, left the company in 2019. How much did he leave with
0: uh, yeah, he he's not hurting. He he took you know well over a billion uh, dollars, and, and and that was through a, an array of things. He sold a lot of his stock uh, that he built up, and then he also uh, sort of got got the biggest investor, SoftBank, to pay him to leave even after. They wanted him out. It, it was a pretty incredible root negotiation. So um, he left incredibly rich. He started a new startup, which sounds we don't know much about it, but it sounds like a, a real estate company with, with a tech valuation. Um and he's still uh, convincing people. And it it it's a very sort of you know well known venture capital firm behind him, Andreessen Horowitz. It, it's not nobody and, and they they gave him um you know three hundred fifty million for it. They seem very excited about him and, and his, his mm-hmm. new company. So um you know he's he's still entrepreneuring, still in the same space.
3: So do you think there's any chance We Work will come back or it's done?
0: Oh, I actually think that's an important distinction. I would expect that it'll come out of this intact. They're just trying to restructure to get rid of all their, their high-cost leases, keep the profitable leases, and get rid of their debt. If you can do that, like you should be able to turn this into a company that makes money. It should have the at least theoretical ability to do that.
3: Elliot, a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you for having me.
4: Wall Street Journal reporter Elliot Brown is one of the co-authors of the book The Cult of We?, We reached him in London, England. The Pu Teke Teke is what you might call an odd duck. It's not actually a duck, it's an aquatic diving bird. But it is odd. Even one of its greatest admirers describes it as a weird puker with a colorful mullet. That great admirer is John Oliver, host of Last Week Tonight. And he has elbowed his way into New Zealand's Bird of the Century contest with a full throated call to get the Pu Teke Teke elected.
6: I don't just want the Pu Teke Teke to win. I wanted to win in the biggest landslide in the history of this magnificent competition. I wanted to do to other bird-of-the-century candidates what the poo does to fish in New Zealand's lakes. That is, eat them alive and then throw them back up in a ball of feathers. Do it, because after all, this is what democracy is all about. America interfering in foreign elections.
4: John Oliver's campaign for the Puteke Teke is not just brash and loud, it's global. He's taken out billboards in cities around the world. Sam Taylor is a campaign manager for one of the other birds, the Coca-Cola. We reached her in Auckland, New Zealand.
3: Sam, you heard John Oliver there. How do you feel about that?
7: Oh, look, old John Oliver, he has stuck his beacon and he's ruffled some feathers. (laughs) Uh, But this is a competition after all. And honestly, at the end of the day, he's raising awareness for New Zealand's native bird life and that can only really help with the support that we need for the conservation here. So, I'm ready for some healthy, slightly aggressive okay. competition.
3: <laughs> slightly aggressive? Yeah, all caps aggressive slightly, from yeah. where I'm Extremely where I'm
5: aggressive. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but how are other campaigns reacting? You're, you know, you're handling it well uh and seeing, you know, the the joy in it, but how are others reacting? Yes.
7: I think some of the campaign managers are feeling a little bit despondent about it. You know, he's come in all guns blazing. And it's hard to compete with. But with a bit of time, I'm sure they'll see the fun in it.
3: <laughs> yes, your your bird, the Coca-Cola is quite lovely, uh, which we will talk about in just a minute. But a little more of John Oliver's pitch. He says, quote, mm-hmm. you want elegance? I'll give you some elegance. This is not a good John Oliver impression, but the words are still strong. They have a mating (laughs) dance where they both grab a clump of wet grass and chest bump each other before standing around, unsure what to do next. I have never identified with anything more in my effing life. End quote. That's John Oliver, not me. What is your pitch?
7: Oh, God. Okay. Well, I mean, that's a tough act to follow, but I think that the kokako. While it is slightly more understated in looks than the Putikitiki, it is just as kind of quirky. It's a bit of an introvert. It's quite elusive. It has spent the last couple of decades clawing its way back from the brink of extinction. So maybe that's why. But it has got a sort of hauntingly beautiful song. It is also known as the Grey Ghost, probably because it's so elusive. And the other day I heard someone describe its song as the haunting harmonica. So I think that that is quite a beautiful tagline, which we might just run with. (laughs) They do things like stress eating. They find a mate pretty much just to look after their food source. (laughs) Um, And you know what? I feel like that's something that we can all relate to after coming out of a pandemic and wanting to sort of avoid people and just stay in our own space and eat.
3: I feel, to take John Oliver's words, I've never identified with anything more <laughs> in my <laughs> life. Most of the categories, not all of them, just to be clear. The name also, similar. But they're beautiful. It's grey and it has this sort of pocket of um, bright blue.
7: Yeah, the blue waddle is sort of the distinctive feature of the yeah. kōkako.
3: Understated. Yeah.
7: No, they're they're incredible. They're, they're bigger than you would expect. They've actually... They've got pretty strong legs and they've got a bit of height on them these kokako.
3: Yeah, I'm team I mean I as a journalist I shouldn't reveal my my leanings but I'm I'm team kokako for <laughs> sure. Yes. You mentioned the calls, yes. the haunting call uh, of the kokako, but let's mm-hmm. let's hear them first. We'll start with the the pūteke ticket. Ah. 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 I think I understand why he identifies with it. No, how would you describe that call?
7: <laughs> I mean, it sort of sounds like a sick car engine revving. <laughs> to me, is probably how I would describe the poo Ticky Ticky.
3: Yeah, or John Oliver in bird form. Yeah. Not to be. Yeah, or John man.
7: Oliver in bird form. Let's go with that. That's better.
3: <laughs> okay, and here's the Coca Cola. I mean, to me, it's no contest. It's soothing. It's lovely. How would you describe it?
7: I mean, I know which one I'd want to listen to. (laughs) I think, um, yeah, I think Haunting Harmonica, I'm sticking with it. I think it's a good little catchphrase and it's a beautiful sound. They also have little regional dialects as well. So you have little pockets of them around the North Island and, and they'll sound different depending on where they're from.
3: We talked about what they look like. Have you ever seen one?
7: Do you know what? I have not had the pleasure. I've mm-hmm. tried. Mm-hmm. I've tried and they have eluded me so far, but the team members that I work with at Kōkako Coffee Roasters, they <laughs> definitely have. And then we are the, the our joint campaign managers, the Kōkako Eco Sanctuary, who are a conservation group. They see plenty. <laughs> and yeah, I've, I've do. heard only good things.
3: The voting is, is still going on for a few more days. So how are you feeling about your mm-hmm. chances? that you'll beat out John Oliver here?
7: Well, the Kōkakoa might be a little introvert, but, you know, desperate times call for desperate measures, and I think what we need to do here is fight fire with fire. And if we can get some international support for the North Island Kōkakoa, we might just be in with a chance.
3: (laughs) We started with a bit of trash talk from John Oliver. You want to throw any back at him?
7: You know what? It's just, it is not the Kōkakoa way... (laughs)
3: I knew you would say that.
7: We are polite, nice little birds that just keep to ourselves. But um, John Oliver, we're coming for you.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Sam, it was a pleasure speaking with you and our listeners. We should say, feel free to vote however you like, but really vote for the Coca-Cola. Let's definitely
7: vote for the Coca-Cola. The ghost with the most, the haunted harmonica. We need your votes.
3: It's been a pleasure, Sam. Thank you.
7: Thank you
4: very much. Sam Taylor is the campaign manager for the Coca-Cola in the ongoing vote for Bird of the Century. She's in Auckland, New Zealand, and you can vote in the contest at birdoftheyear.org.nz.
3: Vote wisely.
4: Seen the movie going down the road, chances are that Bruce Coburn song takes you right back to its opening scenes. An aerial shot of Cape Breton, fog over water, overgrown train tracks, a broken down farmhouse, a forlorn looking young boy. It's the kind of documentary style footage that helped make Donald Shabib's first feature an instant and enduring Canadian classic. Mr. Shabib died on Sunday. He was 85 years old. That 1970 film is just one of many for which Mr. Shabib has been celebrated over the years. But the story of two young men who leave the Maritimes in pursuit of greener pastures remains his most celebrated. And as he told the CBC in 1993, he always found that somewhat curious.
8: I made it as a film. I didn't make. I didn't expect it was going to be a theatrical film that would play four months in New York and run all across Canada and and and, and be the film it was going to be. I just made a movie. I didn't think about it. I figured once if I had a screening one day in a theater with maybe a hundred people, I would have would have been happy. So I never really was ambitious, and I'm not an ambitious person that way.
4: The late filmmaker Donald Shabib speaking to the CBC's Sheila Rogers in 1993. Mr. Shabib died this weekend in Toronto with his family by his side. Noah Shabib, better known as Forty, is a Canadian producer, songwriter, and record executive, and Donald Shabib's son. We reached him in Toronto.
3: Noah, your father sounds surprised there, but what about you? Why do you think so many Canadians connected was going down the road?
2: Because it was real and authentic and honest and truthful. I mean, those things sort of shined through in that film. You could not deny them. There was no, yeah, there was no Hollywood-esque story. There was no faking it. This was raw. And it was from truth and experience okay. and struggle and pain. And I think that's That flowed across the screen and was very evident to anyone who ever experienced watching that film.
3: And how did Don Chiviv, the director, compare to Don, the dad?
2: Probably I should say the exact same. I mean, he directed his family and the (laughs) household uh, the same way. I think, you know, most of my friends were pretty intimidated by him when we were young. You know, he was uh, a very stern man, but he was also kind and empathetic.
3: He doesn't come. Yeah, he didn't come across as stern in the in the interviews.
2: And when he's your father, like listening to the interviews is the most soft spoken I've heard. My father <laughs> watching the old interviews is the most vulnerable I've ever seen him be. You know, um, he was a jock. You know, so he played tough at all times.
3: I heard he he had a lot of hobbies. Uh, you mentioned sports, but what about stamp collecting, airplanes?
2: Yeah, his talent in model airplane building is like i've never seen more exquisite detailed models in my life uh he was very talented at that his stamp collection i'm i'm sorting stamps as we speak and the other thing that was like you know, meticulous and prominent were his golf clubs. Like my, to sum up, my father, he would collect and find old golf clubs at a flea market for next to nothing, bring them home, <laughs> shine them up, refinish them, fix the grip. You know, dip them in varnish, bring them out to the golf course and outdrive every single person that was sitting there with their brand new Callaway driver that they just paid $800 <laughs> for. That is the best way I could divine my father.
3: <laughs> it sounds like another dad I know. Uh, and that's a beautiful way to, to describe yours. I know you had a chance to work together um, you know, on Night Talk. You were the executive producer of, of your father's last feature film. How did he prepare you for a life in the arts?
2: I mean, I've, you know, growing up in the arts is an interesting thing, right? You quickly learn that Canadian arts is a different game than American arts. And my father made it a point to play in the Canadian game. And, you know, Norman Jewison asked him to leave Canada and go to L.A. and he declined. He stayed here. And, you know, his peers are the likes of Carol Ballard and Francis Ford Coppola and, that you know that were his colleagues in school, and he stayed in Canada and made a statement for arts in this country, and and Canadian stories specifically, which going down the road is the definition of a Canadian story. And you know, it also gave me the understanding that like this is a subjective business, and no matter how talented or good you are, you're still going to have your challenges, and you're still going to be fighting to survive as an artist in this country. So I was prepared. And I was ready for what, what lied ahead of me. But you have to understand, my father did not encourage me in the art.
3: I was going to ask. Yeah.
2: My, my father wanted me to be a doctor or <laughs> a lawyer or an engineer. I They're mean, all
3: the same, right?
2: <laughs> um, and uh, so, you know, he knew all too well the trials and tribulations of being an artist in this country. Yeah. And, you know, part of that defined me. I promised myself that if by the time I made it to 25, I hadn't found success in music. I would go back to school and uh, that was actually the year I, I did find success when I was 25.
3: Fortunately, uh, it, it worked out uh, in, in the industry for you. But mm-hmm. you know, that decision to stay, that seminal decision to stay, you were talking about, it, it was in spite of the fact that he had he took issue with a lot of the things, it, the the way the industry operated here, how Canadians saw themselves and portrayed themselves, how the industry worked. We have a we have another clip of your father that we wanted to play.
8: Okay, entertainment is, uh, has always been a sort of a dirty word to Canadians, or they define it. There are people in the in, in the business, in the uh, in the in the arts uh, community, in the government art community, who who think entertainment entertainment film means Prom Night ten or uh, Meatball seven. Well, I mean, Casablanca is entertaining. It's a wonderful film. Lawrence of Arabia is entertaining. Uh, Gone with the Wind, or any number of Citizen Kane is entertaining. I mean. Um, I met someone about a year ago who said, yeah, I saw this Canadian film. It was, it was good. Yeah, it was good. It wasn't very entertaining, but it was good. I wanted to strangle them. I mean, if it wasn't, any, it wasn't entertaining, it wasn't any good.
3: So he had some strong feelings, and that was just one of the things he said about the industry. Did he say anything, you know, in, in the more recent years that he'd seen things change, or was he still uh, worried about how we, we framed our stories and how the industry works?
2: yeah i think he was always worried and i think that was another reason why he stayed because he saw an opportunity to help and change it although i don't know if he was ever really granted the opportunity to do so my mother would always say if you know my father had been an old hollywood director in early hollywood who just said you know the producers would say here's five stories tell me which one which one you want to do and he'd pick one and make an incredible story out of it like that, that was sort of the world he would have thrived in the most, probably. And, you know, he was very classical, my father. He wasn't worried about the, the fluff. He was worried about the content.
3: Last year, uh, when he was speaking to the Toronto Star about his last film, Night Talk, he said, quote, I really don't care about legacy. I'm just story driven. And it's all about conflict. I have no time for films and and projects without conflict because that's what it's all about. Did he talk to you about this idea uh, of legacy? I mean, obviously, it's there. It's there in all the projects he did. But he said he wasn't concerned or preoccupied with that.
2: Yeah, he was just too modest and humble to be concerned with legacy. That was not his priority, you know. His priority was just stories. He just wanted to tell good stories. He just wanted to make good film. He wasn't worried about all the other nonsense, for better or for worse, right? I mean, it was his strength in a lot of ways, and it was his weakness. It's why he wasn't as successful over-the-top as he should have been. But of course, he celebrated because he was talented and he stood for something as far as the way he produced films and the way he made films.
3: Well, Noah, I'm sorry for your loss and your family's loss, but I very much appreciate your time. Thank you.
2: No, thank you so much. I very much appreciate yours as well.
4: That was the late Donald Shabib's son, Noah Shabib, better known to many as Drake's producer, 40. We reached him in Toronto. In most communities, if you say you have cold feet, it means you're backing out of something. In Medstead, Saskatchewan, it means you've been curling. Every year in Medstead, they close out the curling season with a round of barefoot curling. But for a full year now, the town has been missing a key ingredient of that tradition, ice. Without it, there's no curling at all, shod or unshod. The local curling rink's ice plant failed last year, and residents of Medstead are raising money to get the town's favorite sport rolling again. Medstead and District Recreation Association volunteer Jacqueline Drieschner says the sport brings the town together.
9: It just it involves everybody of all ages, hey? Like, I'm still curling with my grandma, who's over 70. It's awesome. We get to hang out with grandma once a week, or we'll go to some bonds wheels and stuff like that. I just love it. And I'm hoping my daughter gets to throw her first rock in our rink as well. She'll, she'll be the fourth generation to curl in Medstead. So you're you're getting everybody from very small individuals starting curling out to our seniors. Like when I curl, I actually would lead curl with my mom, my grandma, and my sister.
3: That's awesome. What about the barefoot part? <laughs>
9: <laughs> That's just kind of an annual tradition. I don't know when it started. It was definitely before my time, but there's like a pancake breakfast that weekend and often a dance. It's just a, usually a really big weekend for for our community. At the end of the year, after our Open Bondsville, that's the last event that the curling club hosts every year, they actually shut the ice plant down because it wouldn't want to uh, wreck it with warm feet on the ice, <laughs> <laughs> plus just making it more cold. And everybody heads out on the ice. They throw $5 in a bucket. You get to throw a practice rock from one end of the ice down to the other. And then you're supposed to walk and not run all the way down to the other end of the ice to go get your rock to actually take your shot.
3: Oh! (laughs) How hard is it not to run or tiptoe?
9: Well, the first time I did it, I would have been about 13. You really (laughs) want to run, but about halfway down the ice, you can't feel your feet anymore (laughs) anyways. So... It's easy from that point on.
4: (laughs) Medstead and District Recreation Association volunteer Jacqueline Drieshner, speaking to Stephanie Langenegger, host of CBC Regina's Morning Edition.
1: The choice is yours. You can get with this or you can get with that.
4: 90s rappers Black Sheep with a bit of their song, The Choice is Yours, exploring the eternal question, should one get with this or should one get with that? It's a question we all have to answer for ourselves, but a linguistic debate may be closer to being answered and it is all about this and that. Those two words are what linguists call spatial demonstratives. They tell us where things are in relation to the speaker. This is something close to me. That is something way over there. Now, new research indicates that every language in the world has some equivalent to those spatial demonstratives. Here, there, and everywhere, you will always find this and that. Or in the language of academia, spatial communication systems across languages reflect universal action constraints. That is the title of a new study published in Nature Human Behavior. Its lead researcher is Kenny Coventry of East Anglia University in England. We reached
6: him there.
3: So what exactly were you able to learn here that we didn't know before? What did you find across all of these different languages?
6: Okay, so the, the background to this is that you know, there are over 7,000 languages spoken mm-hmm. uh, across the world, and linguists are really debating at the moment the extent to which languages are just so incredibly diverse, or whether there are actually any universal properties of languages, That whether there are particular words we might use in the same way. So English has got two words, this and that. Um, these w- particular words, demonstratives, are interesting because all languages have them, and we were really interested in whether speakers of different languages actually use these words in the same way. Whether there's anything, a- anything basic driving the use of the words. So we tested, yeah, using an experimental setup exactly how people use these words by varying how far away objects are placed from the speaker and also the position of the person that they're talking to. Mm. And it turns out that across 29 diverse languages, you know, spoken in different areas of the world from different language families, all languages indeed seem to have a word like this to refer to an object that's reachable by the person speaking, and an object that, which denotes being out of reach for the speaker.
3: You talked about the debate that's going on about the diversity of languages. So is saying that there are these similarities based on your research, is that a controversial thing to inject into that debate?
6: It is quite controversial because, I mean, one would expect that describing where objects are in the environment would be something that would be likely to be common across languages. But with other types of spatial terms, like prepositions or adpositions, uh, like terms like left, right, near, far, in, on, words like that, it turns out that there's a, a lot of diversity across languages. So we think this reachable, non-reachable distinction is so fundamental to us because you know, when you're sitting in a high chair as, a, as an infant, the first thing you do, one of the first things you do is try and reach objects. And then a few months later, you start pointing at objects. And then a few months later, you start pointing, using this and that to refer to where objects are. Mm-hmm. So we think being able to direct people you know, telling somebody that I can reach an object or i can 't reach an object, but I know that you can is actually fundamental to being able to get things when you 're a child
8: oh, that is
6: and, and there 's a theory about the origins of language which argues that language actually evolved from gesture so before you know we started as a species using uh, using words, um, what we did was actually we gestured towards mm-hmm. objects and then language appeared later in evolution. On top of these kind of this kind of gestural system,
3: and when we 're learning new languages too, that's one of the the first ways you'll learn right someone will will point to something and, and, absolutely. Say and pointing this is that. absolutely mm-hmm.
6: fundamental, so it allows us to draw the attention of somebody to an object in space, so hence the present work i've been doing with uh, with forty four other colleagues in a large in a large team uh, really uh, sort bucks the trend of diversity, arguing there is actually something common about the way we talk about space.
3: I think it's nice to hear that kind of commonality across all of these languages and cultures, but I can see why it would be controversial uh, in the research circles. How did you go about picking these 29?
6: Well, we wanted to pick languages that are are diverse, and Mm that they're spoken in geographically diverse areas, but also from different, you know, different language families. So we sample Indo-European languages, Uralic languages, Dravidian languages, and so on and so forth. And also, we picked languages where linguists have, have argued that demonstrative systems are, are somewhat unusual. So we used a range of parameters to decide in the languages that we, that we wanted to test. So we tried to come up with a representative sample.
3: Is there something that, that kept you up at night doing this research?
6: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's really, really hard to do um, experimental work with large numbers of speakers of um, a, a diverse set of languages. Historically, in linguistics, a lot of insights are gleaned by sitting down and talking to just a few speakers of the language, sort of embedding yourself in the culture and understanding the language that way. But one thing that we found was that even within a language, there's a lot of variation in how people use words. Some of my colleagues travelled long distances uh, with backpacks to actually get to speakers of languages in uh, in, in more rural environments.
3: It does sound like like fun research to carry out.
6: Uh, Absolutely.
3: So you've mastered, you've conquered this this and that. Where do you go next?
6: Well, we're working on a whole range of different types of words. Another type of word is a, a word called quantifiers. So few, some, many, lots, terms like that, to see whether there are any commonalities in how languages describe quantity, And actually, we're continuing work in demonstratives, there are other things that affect how people use demonstratives. For example, if an object's owned by a speaker versus owned by somebody else, some languages have different words to describe the object owned by themselves or by somebody else.
3: Kenny, thanks for your time.
6: Thank you. um, Thank you for your interest in the work. Take care. Okay. Bye for now.
4: Kenny Coventry is a linguist at East Anglia University in England. English-language universities in Quebec are calling it an unprecedented proposition. The provincial government's response has been somewhat less dramatic. In a meeting with the Quebec government, the heads of McGill, Concordia, and Bishop's universities pledged to make French-language classes mandatory for non-Quebec residents. The pitch was an effort to reverse the province's decision to double tuition for out-of-province students. For the most part, it seems as though it has fallen short. Fabrice Lebeau is McGill's deputy provost for Student Life and Learning. We reached him in Montreal.
3: Professor, Quebec's government has called this proposal that McGill and the other universities have have put forward, quote, a step in the right direction, but it's still not enough to reverse the province's decision. So where does that leave McGill? What more can you do?
1: so i think the uh we we've put forward the uh a proposal that the uh that the the three universities has called a have called a historic proposal i think it is it's a it's a big step uh for now, of course, there has been some, uh, some, some uh, messages that the, uh, this was a step in the right direction. I find this to be very promising. Uh, we are still waiting to hear back from the Premier himself. He told the uh, universities that he would get back to us soon. So I don't think that the, uh, we'll take the, uh, the, the current uh, reports as the final decision at all.
3: Okay, so the case isn't closed in your view. There might Exactly. Be some, okay. Would you go so far as to say they might reverse it? Do you have uh, hints that, that that might
1: come? Well, it's hard for me to say what the uh, what the government has in mind and what our premier has in mind, of course. But we're very hopeful that the uh, the proposal that we've put on the table is a very good one. I think we're trying to uh, to to uh, reach the uh, the same goals as what the government is trying to reach, but doing it without having to close our doors to uh, students from the rest of Canada.
3: And just tell our listeners, professor, what exactly the proposal entails.
1: Well, so the uh, you know the, uh, the the background of all this is that the uh, the current proposal from the Quebec government is to double the, mm-hmm. nearly double the tuition fees for students from the rest of Canada, and we think that this will uh, will act a bit like a tariff and will will basically prevent a lot of these students from being able to attend uh, McGill. So what we're proposing. Instead of closing all doors to the students from the rest of Canada because one of the main uh, uh, the main challenges that the government told us it's trying to uh, it's trying to address is the decline of French in Montreal is it, basically what we're saying is let's welcome these students and try to basically make sure that they have the right tools in hand to learn French integrate in the culture and the, and the, the life of Quebec and stay here to have a, to participate in the workforce so what we put forward is an increased number of of the uh, courses for French as a second language for these uh, these students, uh, more opportunities for internships and co coops placements that would be in French, uh, targeted service and activities to accelerate the, uh, the, the the development of their language skills, their integration in the uh, in the profession in French, etc. So the idea really here is to try and. Take in all the students, leave our doors open, but also act in terms of a, uh, making sure that as many of the, the students as possible learn French, integrate in Quebec, and and finally stay here to contribute to the uh, to the society.
3: Last month, though, after after this this proposal, the news of this proposal from the government broke. McGill paused the 50 million dollar program it had planned to launch that was going to help professors, staff, and students improve their French. So. Why do that? What kind of message do you think that sends to the government?
1: Well, I, I don't think it was a question of sending a message. Mm-hmm. It was a question of being uh, fiscally responsible. The, uh, the program we had, as you mentioned, was the, uh, an investment of $50 million over five years in, the, uh, in, in helping our people or members of our community integrate more into Quebec society and learn French. When we heard uh, of news of, the, uh, of the, uh, an announcement from the ministry that would actually have an impact on our finances, we figured it was way better to pause it and regroup once we had a better sense. Now that we know that the potential consequences of the announcement as they were made three weeks ago is up to nearly $100 million a, uh, a year of lost revenue for McGill, mm-hmm. this, of course, makes us, uh, makes us think twice about how we can, uh, we can implement such a program.
3: That sum that you mentioned, mentioned how would that impact programs and students if it came down to that
1: of course it's a question of the, uh, of uh, funding a question of money but uh, the, uh, the the impact would not be uh, only that the impact would be along the lines of um, us maybe having to cut some of our varsity teams because one third of our student athletes come from outside Quebec. So if we don't have students from outside Quebec coming to a, to a uh, McGill anymore, we won't be able to have uh, that many varsity teams. Uh, in terms of the uh, of the makeup of our student population, not having uh, students from the rest of Canada would we really really have an impact on the DNA of our institution. We are of course a very international university. We have people coming from 155 different countries to McGill. We're also a very Canadian university in the sense that 20% of our uh, student population is from other provinces in Canada. And so if we were to lose that characteristic I think it would alter the uh, the McGill's DNA and McGill's identity in a major way so the uh, uh that that is that diversity of students we have on our campus is part of, part of the McGill experience in terms of the um the, the the lost revenue of course the uh some of our faculties would be impacted more heavily by this uh that includes our, our school of music for instance where 40 percent of the students are from the rest of canada and so that that will be uh that would be very difficult for that particular faculty uh, in terms of the the, the 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 loss of revenue, it will also impact our ability to a uh, to to uh, carry out some of our big infrastructure projects, of course, which mm-hmm. require resources. We will have to a uh, to uh, do possible job reductions, hiring freezes, etc. So it's really not trivial.
3: When Minister Thierry says we remain firm, I'm paraphrasing here. It's not up to Quebec taxpayers to finance or subsidize the training of thousands of Canadian students outside Quebec. What do you make of that
1: statement? Well, so I think the, 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 that's, that's, a, uh, that's a, uh, an argument that has been used a lot. But I think it, it also must be uh, looked at from the perspective of the, the, the cer- a certain level of reciprocity you have currently across Canada. So, of course, the uh, student from an outside province that comes to Quebec to mm-hmm. study at one of our universities will be subsidized by, the, uh, uh, by the, uh, the the local Quebec government. But the same thing will happen for a Quebec student who goes, for instance, to Ontario to a uh, to university. So the, we all benefit uh, from these uh, from these arrangements. I think that the uh, principle of reciprocity has been in place for quite a while. Uh, the, uh, the, the current announcement from, the, uh, from our ministry is really threatening that uh, equilibrium, I would say.
3: Professor, thank you.
1: Thank you very much.
4: Fabrice Lebeau is McGill's Deputy Provost for Student Life and Learning. He's in Montreal. Over 13 billion light-years away, there's a galaxy called UHZ-1. And while that might be a boring name, don't worry, you can't hear me, new research about it is a lot more exciting. Scientists have reviewed data from a pair of NASA telescopes, the James Webb and the Chandra X-ray Observatory, and they say there is a supermassive black hole in that galaxy that is the oldest confirmed so far. Akos Bogdan is the lead author of a paper about it published in Nature Astronomy. He's an astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics. We reached him in Cambridge, Massachusetts.
3: Akos, when, when there is a discovery like this, I'm wondering how your astrophysicist colleagues react. Are we talking high fives in the hallway? What do they say?
10: Well, everybody is very excited. Uh, So I'm working at the Chandra X-ray Center. Mm -hmm. So Chandra has been the main instrument uh, which has discovered this black hole in the galaxy called UHZ1. And in the Chandra X-ray Center, everybody is very excited. And the reason for that, that this is one of the greatest discoveries Chandra has Mm -hmm. made in the past few years, maybe in the past decade or so.
3: Just getting to this point of this discovery, what has it been like for you to work on this project?
10: So it has been a long journey, I should say. We started this whole journey a couple of years ago, even before James Webb, the James Webb Space Telescope has been launched. So we knew well ahead that the James Webb Space Telescope is going to observe uh, this galaxy cluster. And behind this galaxy cluster, we were hoping that we will see, James Webb will see uh, many galaxies, which are early in the universe. And then I had the idea that We should also observe the same galaxy cluster and hence the galaxies early in the universe with the Chandra X-ray Observatory. Mm -hmm. By doing both sets of these observations, so essentially multiplying the forces of the James Webb Space Telescope and the Chandra X-ray Observatory, we can find something amazing. Mm -hmm. And this is what we did here.
3: Were you looking specifically for this black hole though, when you say trying to find something amazing?
10: Yes, we were specifically looking for, well, not for this particular galaxy, but we were specifically trying to find supermassive black holes in very ancient galaxies. So that was our, our big goal.
3: Supermassive is the official technical scientific term here. Other words being used to describe it are behemoth, gargantuan. How large is this black hole as black holes go?
10: <laughs> this supermassive black hole uh, has mass of between 10... Two hundred million solar masses, so ten to hundred million times the mass of our own sun. So it is pretty big.
3: Yeah. <laughs> all in <and> roughly <laughs> another description, roughly the same mass as all the stars in that galaxy combined.
10: Exactly, and that is the really surprising fact. Or maybe not so much, sur- not so surprising uh, when you consider some recent theoretical works from one of my colleagues, Priyan who predicted theoretically that such galaxies and black holes may exist. But to our great delight, we happen to see one of these uh, galaxies and black holes.
3: How are they feeling? Are they predicted correctly?
10: Oh, I think that, that she's uh, beyond ecst- ecst- ecstatic. <laughs> so she's very, very happy about this. For theoretical people, when you predict something and a mm-hmm. couple of years later, and it was only six years later, uh, you find something such uh, such an amazing galaxy and a supermassive black hole, thereby confirming the theory, it is it, it is amazing feeling.
3: And how old is it?
10: So we see this galaxy in a supermassive black hole at a time when the universe was only 470 million years old. Baby. Or you can imagine it, uh, that the age of the universe was only 3% of its current age. So it was really an infant universe back then. Uh,
3: did it grow to this supermassive size or was it born that way?
10: Yes, yeah, so that is a very great question. So this is... This is, this is the very question that we were trying to understand. How, how did the first supermassive black holes form? Were they small masses? So did they have a small initial mass or 10 to 100 solar masses, roughly? Or were they much bigger? And what this study and this discovery tells us that in this particular galaxy, the initial mass of the supermassive black hole, in other words, how the supermassive black hole was born, it, it was a big supermassive black hole seed. So it was really something, 10,000, 100,000 solar masses, and then it started to grow. So what we have learned is that the first supermassive black holes, or some of them at least, were really big.
3: When we think of the bigger questions about the universe, do these findings answer some of those bigger questions? You know, it it does what one galaxy is is telling you, reflecting what's happened in all of them.
10: Yeah, so, so... uh, discoveries like this definitely uh, answer questions. So, for example, theories, they always think how the first, in this case, how the first supermassive black holes formed. even before we had the James Webb Space Telescope and before Chandra had a chance to see something like that. And even though this is a single galaxy so early on, it definitely motivates further studies. It definitely motivates further searches. So I'm actually looking, I'm trying to search for other galaxies and their supermassive black holes, just like UHZ1, and of course why this is very important is because it motivates also further theoretical studies. So people just like my colleagues uh, who are very interested in how the first supermassive black holes formed, they will keep pushing and they will keep thinking and and coming up with various theories to explain the existence of these galaxies and, uh, and to further push the limits of our understandings.
3: It's an exciting time for
10: you. Absolutely, very exciting.
3: ACOS, thank you for your time.
10: Thank you very much.
4: That was astrophysicist ACOS Bogdan in Cambridge, Massachusetts. and I were thinking of doing an ASMR version of as it happens, where we whisper everything. Is that a great idea? Signs point to yes. Right again. Magic eight ball. Look, I know I use the magic eight ball a lot, but I'm not dependent on it. I just check with it before I make any major or minor decisions. And I'm incapable of making decisions without it. That doesn't mean I should get rid of it, does it? Hmm. My reply is no. Well, you heard the ball. Uh, Maybe you outsource your big decisions too. In fact, maybe you're so used to consulting consultants that you need consultants to tell you how to stop consulting consultants. Yes, I'm talking to you, federal government. Today, the Globe and Mail published an article that began with this sentence. The federal government hired KPMG consultants at a cost of hundreds of thousands of dollars for advice on how to save money on consultants. Documents show. Now, the government is trying to cut spending, especially on management consultants, but apparently the Department of Natural Resources didn't trust its own judgment on how to do that because it hired consultants to find out how to spend less on consultants at a cost of $669,650. That seems like a lot, especially when consultants are not likely to end up saying don't hire consultants, but I'm sure Ottawa will figure this out, just like I will learn to make decisions without my magic eight ball. Right, Magic 8 Ball? Outlook not so good. Nuts.